Our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 20, beginning in the first verse. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you, Abby, for reading our passage for us. Thanks, Brian, for leading us in worship. And also thank you, Shadburns, for sharing in Sunday school this morning and, and during our service for a minute. It's good to have you with us. Um, Well, let me add my uh, welcome to you. Uh, If you're new here and I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Murray Nickel, and I am the assistant pastor here at Redeemer. And whether you're joining us online, tuning in online, or or here in person, uh, it is good to have you with us worshiping uh, the Lord this morning. Well, we're drawing near to the end of our series in Revelation, and uh, you probably noticed, despite my best efforts to avoid preaching on chapter 20, with all of its complications and interpretive issues, here we are. Uh, So if you'll allow me, let me pray for us once more as we come to God's word and ask for his help. Uh, Oh, Lord God, your word is good, it is true, and God, sometimes it feels like it holds things far too glorious for us. So, Father, we need you. We need your spirit. God, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see and hear the good news of Jesus in this text this morning. God, uh, anything that I say that is not from you, I pray that you would allow it uh, mercifully to fall to the side, that we may behold Jesus. It's in his name alone we pray. 
Amen. Well, uh, in 2008, uh, the summer, uh, a year or so before I uh, started college, a, a little thing called the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe was launched uh, with a little movie called Iron Man. And over uh, the past 14 years, that uh, cinematic universe has grown to include 27 films, all connected to each other in various ways, uh, not to mention now several uh, spin-off shows on Disney+, Plus, uh, Netflix. And I will be honest with you, I have watched almost, not every one of them, but almost every single one of them. And many of them I have watched multiple times. Uh, and I am not the only one. Uh, I looked it up this week. Th this franchise of movies is by far uh, the most successful film fran franchise of all time, raking in almost $27 billion in just box office sales alone. Um, not to mention the countless merchandise lines, the clothes, the lunch boxes, the, the snacks, the uh, Lego sets. So, so how has this series of movies been and stories been so wildly successful? I mean, if anybody has seen Marvel movies, you know that they all sh share roughly the same plot. We all know where every single one of them is ultimately going. So why have they been so successful? I think it's because the way they're structured, while super predictable, it capitalizes and, and draws out in us a deep desire that we all have. Um, you know, every superhero story has at its core th this tension between good and evil. And every Marvel movie or show is aimed at one thing, and that is building that tension moment by moment, scene by scene, making, making you long for that tension to be broken until finally the full forces of good face off against the full forces of evil, and evil is defeated once and for all, or at least until uh, the next sequel. Uh, there has been 27 of them. <laughs> and I think life in our present world uh, has that same feeling of mounting tension, doesn't it? I think we feel it when we look at the world in general, war, pandemics, political polarization, environmental questions and concerns, Things seem to be getting worse, and we want to feel that ten we want to see that tension broken, don't we? I think we also feel it as the church in relationship to the world. You know, we live in a culture that is increasingly post-Christian in the way that it thinks and operates, a culture that, that is increasingly hostile to the Lord and to his people, a culture in which we feel or should feel more and more other. And we want that tension to be broken. And I think in the midst of this life of growing conflict, suffering, or outright persecution, I think our confidence that that tension will break, I think our confidence in that can grow kind of brittle. And I wonder if maybe, even as we've been wading through Revelation now for the last several months, I, I, and especially Revelation 6 to 19, all these series of judgments, all these hard pictures I wonder if you felt that yearning for the tension to break growing. I'll be the first to admit, as I came to this text, I just got so excited. All I wanted to do was get into chapter 21. And, and maybe even you struggled to hold on to confidence that that tension will break. And I think just when it feels like we can't take any more of it, I think that's when we hit Revelation 20. You know, Fritz said last week in his sermon on, chapter, on the end of chapter 19 that you know, these last three chapters 
in Revelation or so, 19 to 22, John, John is, is getting at one central idea. And that is that, that even as that tension mounts, even as that yearning for it to break grows, that God is even now preparing his people for a place and a place for his people. And we see this in chapter 19 and 20 through this series, this, this, uh, the next series of seven, right? These seven and I saw visions. And I think and in Revelation 20, I think what we see at the heart of this is this picture of one final battle in which that, all that tension of life in a world that is increasingly under judgment is finally and forever broken as Jesus comes back to conquer all the forces of evil in this world once and for all. As it builds to that climactic battle, I think what Revelation 20 is trying to do is to give us confidence. I think it gives us confidence in three things. Confidence in Christ's present reign, confidence in Christ's future victory, and confidence in Christ's final verdict. Now, before we get into the text, uh, we really need to deal with the interpretive elephant in the room. Uh, as many of you know, um, and if not, you're, you're going to get a crash course here. Uh, chapter 20 is where interpretations of Revelation, they, they, they split off in different directions. And it all has to do with questions surrounding, you know, when and in what order the events of chapter 19 to 20 will happen. You know, well, this millennium, this period of a thousand years that we, that we see in verse 2, Will that happen first, or will the, will the return of Jesus happen first? You know, will Jesus come back first and then reign on earth with his resurrected people for an extended period of time where truth and justice, justice reign before the final judgment? Or will he return after the thousand years? And not only that, but there's a question of what's the nature of these thousand years? When should we see them? Is it some extended period off in the future? Or does it describe the present? There are lots of questions, and we could spend all day uh, just talking about how different people have inter interpreted the order of these things, and we could very much miss the point of the passage. Um, and I think the reason there's so much discussion around this is actually because it is fully possible to faithfully follow Jesus and hold to any one of these three major views of when and in what order these things happen. There are faithful brothers and sisters who hold every single one of these. However, my suggestion to you this morning is that, is that Revelation 20 and these, all the, these pictures, that they're not aimed so much um, at, at only giving us confidence based in our future, but they're also intended to give us confidence based in our present. In other words, what, what I'm saying is that my suggestion is that this image of the thousand years is not so much about something we should look ahead to and see coming in the future, but about something that is already here. These thousand years actually are a figurative way the Revelation is describing to us the age in which we live, the time between Christ's resurrection and ascension to the Father and his return. So, so how do I get there? Well, I'm going to give you just a couple principles. Um, I'm leaning partially on another pastor who preached on this, who's much older and wiser than I am. Um, but here's a couple things that we've seen throughout Revelation that I think are going to help orient us uh, to how chapter 20 fits into not only Revelation, but into Scripture as a whole. So, so just a few things. First, Revelation is repetitive, but it's not rote. What do I mean by that? Revelation is always doubling back on itself. 
And we've seen that over and over again, repeating the same realities, but not repeating them in the exact same language or with the exact same picture. Actually, what it's doing is it's giving us different perspectives on the same reality with different details, using different pictures. And I think as we get into the text, you'll see that the chapter 20 actually mimics and, and repeats the vision that we saw all the way back in, in Revelation 12 of this dragon uh, chasing the woman and her offspring. So it's repetitive, but it's not rote. Second, Revelation is, is not as much about precision as it is impression. And that means that like we saw in the other series of seven, you know, the, the seals, the, the trumpets, the bulls, I don't think we should expect, when we come to this text, a, a chronological or sequential unfolding of chapter 20. And actually, like we saw in some of those other series of visions, chronology is hard to hold on to because we just read that Satan has been bound so that he might not deceive the nations, and yet we saw in chapter 19 that the nations have already been destroyed. So it's not as much about precision as it is about impression. And finally, revelation does not exist in isolation. See, we always have to hold on to the fact that, that revelation is one piece in the overarching story of God's plan of salvation and redemption and his plan to make all things new that we see unfolded to, before us from Genesis through Revelation. And so that means that we have to measure our understanding of this text against that of the rest of Scripture. And as we do so, I think what we find is that it mirrors to us Jesus' own words in his earthly ministry, not only about what he is going to do, but about what he has done and is doing even now. I could be wrong on that, um, and you might disagree with my interpretation, and that's okay. I would love to talk more uh, with you in another venue, another setting. However, my hope is that even if we disagree on the order or nature of these events, my hope is that we won't miss the point, <laughs> the point that we've seen throughout Revelation, that our future and the future of this world is sure. And it's sure not only because of what Jesus will do, but because of what Jesus has done and what he is doing now. So, crash course over. We're moving on. We're moving into the text. Look with me at verses 1 to 6 where we see this, this confidence that we're offered in Christ's present reign. And I think we see two things here that characterize Christ's present reign. His present reign over Satan in verses 1 to 3. And his, present, and his present reign with his saints in verse 4 to 6. So verses 1 to 3. John sees, uh, John is given the fourth of this series of seven, and I saw visions. And what does he see? He sees an angel coming down from heaven. In one hand, this angel has the key to the bottomless pit. And in the other hand, he has a great chain. Now, remember that, that this letter would have been read all at once to the gathered people of these churches. And so if you're listening in the first century, if you're listening to this letter and you hear this image, it's going to remind you all the way back to chapter 9, the image of the trumpets, when, when Satan was given a key to the bottomless pit. And there might be a little bit of fear, and yet this angel isn't Satan. Rather, in verse 2, this angel seizes Satan and seals him in the pit for a period of a thousand years. 
So notice, notice first the way that Satan is described here. It calls us, again, it calls us back to Revelation chapter 12, which uses almost the exact same words to describe the dragon who is thrown out of heaven. Listen to how chapter 12 says it. In, in verse 9 of chapter 12, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And just like that dragon in chapter 12 was thrown down and, and was kept from, from harming the woman and her offspring, we see that this dragon in chapter 20 is also bound, is also restrained, right? Repetition. Chapter 20 is the same reality, I think, in a different picture. And not only that, but it actually mirrors the way that Jesus talks about his earthly ministry. In Matthew 12, Jesus is in this moment where he's casting out an unclean spirit. And he asks this rhetorical question about why would I come into the strong man's house without first binding the strong man? And he uses that word bind. It's the same word in the Greek that we see here. So I think what we see here is that the world we live in is a world in which Christ himself has already bound Satan. And he's bound him for a specific purpose, though. Look at the end of verse 3. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. We'll get into him being released in a moment. But, but what we see here is that Christ is presently reigning over Satan. And he has already bound him so that Satan cannot ultimately do what he longs to do, and that is to darken the minds of all the nations so that no one will receive the gospel. And what he longs to do is to rise up against the church and overthrow it. What we're being told here is he cannot do it. Uh, it reminds me of running uh, through our neighborhood. Addie and I, last summer, we bought our first home right across Eastern Parkway in Schnitzelburg. And I love our neighborhood because it's so walkable and it's so runnable. And so as the weather has been warming the last several weeks, we've gotten to get out and run in our neighborhood. Uh, and what I've found is that there are countless dogs uh, just left to roam the backyards of our neighborhood. Um, and as I, as I approach these fences, I get a little, bit of a, a little bit of a jolt of anxiety because I see the dogs eye me and they come tearing towards the fence, the closest spot to me. And they get up against it and they bark and they gnash their teeth. They're trying to convince me to go away, to turn around. And sometimes I do because I will tell you not every fence in Schnitzelberg is of equal quality. Uh, but the reality is, is that unless those dogs, unless that dog can get beyond that fence, it actually has no real or lasting power to stop me from running by, does it? I think that's the picture we're given here of Christ's present reign over Satan. Yes, Satan has some sway on this earth. We've seen that throughout Revelation. But our confidence is that he actually has no lasting power because he's already been bound. He's already been sealed up by Christ so that the gospel can move forward with power and with authority, so that the church can be built, so that we can follow his call to go and make disciples of all nations. So your confidence is that Christ is presently reigning over Satan. But not only that, in the fifth, fifth vision, we see that we have confidence because Christ is presently reigning with his saints. He's reigning over Satan. He's reigning with his saints. 
Verse 4, John sees a picture, another picture, this time of of the souls of the martyrs, the same martyrs from chapter 6 who are crying out for the Lord to vindicate them, asking how long. And he sees a picture, a glorious picture of these souls being welcomed to take part in the reign of Christ. Verse 5, John says, this is the first resurrection. And then in verse 6, he says, therefore the second death has no power over them. Okay, so, so what is going on here? You know, some would say, okay, there must be two different resurrections. There's the resurrection of the saints when Jesus comes back and inaugurates his millennium, and then afterwards is a rec- resurrection of unbelievers for judgment. There are lots of different ideas here, but, but I think in view here is not two separate bodily resurrections, but rather the spiritual resurrection of all God's people that is ours currently in Christ Jesus. And what that means is that, yes, while we live in a world where persecution, suffering, and bodily death is guaranteed unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, our hope is that, yes, we, we will likely all in this room experience a bodily death, and yet we have no fear of a spiritual death, the second death, as we're going to see later on. See, because of Christ's work, we are already spiritually and eternally alive, reigning with Christ Jesus, even now. Christ is presently reigning with his people. And then John does something that he's done before in Revelation to to further the point. He He points back to the Old Testament, to Exodus 19, this picture that God gave his people of his plan for them as they went out to live among the nations. He calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a set-apart nation. And what John is doing is repeating it as the reality for God's people, including us, church, right now. He says they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. See, I think what we see here is, is not a picture of a distant future, but of Christ's present reign with and through his people. You know, Paul says it in Ephesians 2, doesn't he? It is by grace we've been saved. God has raised us, and we've been already seated, past tense, with Christ in the heavenly places. It's done. It's past tense. It's current. See, it's not something we look forward to. It's it's a reign we are participating in now. So so where is confidence found in the midst of this mounting tension that we feel? Well, it's in Christ's present reign, even in the very middle of that tension. So what does that mean for us? I think it means that, you know, we we face a world uh, in which we are given all sorts of reasons to fear that that we're gonna be misunderstood, rejected, maybe even persecuted for choosing to follow Jesus. And yet the reality is that it's in those places that Jesus is already reigning. And he's inviting us, his people, into the unstoppable mission of his gospel to move forward with power and authority. And and that happens in the most unlikely places and with the most unlikely people. It happens in very ordinary conversations, ordinary moments, Shared as you're mowing the lawn over the fence. Shared next to the water cooler. Students shared between classes in the hallways. Shared over the dinner table. 
That's our confidence, that even as we suffer, even as we misunderstood, even as we feel that otherness grow, we are participating in the very reign of Jesus over all things. And his gospel is moving forward. And yet, you know, Christ's present reign, it offers us some confidence, doesn't it? But it still doesn't resolve that growing tension. Look with me at verses 7 to 10, where we see that John is given a picture not only of, of Christ's present reign, but of Christ's future victory. John's vision turns now from, from this present moment to a time in the future just before Christ's return, where he says, Satan will be released from his prison for a little while to gather for war the full force of all those who find themselves out of, outside of relationship with the Lamb. Again, repetition. Revelation is repeating itself. We've seen twice before already this image of, of the dragon gathering the kings for war. In chapter 16, in the sixth bowl of God's wrath. And then finally, last week, in, in chapter 19, verse 19, this image of, of the dragon gathering an army. And not only that, but, but this is not just a battle or a war. This is the war. In, in the Greek, every one of those, all three of those times where it's mentioned in 16, 19, and here, there's a definite article of the before war, which is kind of a strange thing for it to do there. And I think that's because they're all pointing to the same war, the final war between the full forces of evil and God's saints. And the picture of this gathered army of the dragon, it looks bleak, doesn't it? It's an expansive army. Both geographically, it says that they, they come from all four corners of the earth. And numerically expansive. Their, their, their number is like the sand of the sea. The sand of the sea goes back to chapter 12. Again, imagine you're hearing all of this revelation at once. You're going to remember the sand of the sea was the sand on which the dragon stood at the end of chapter 12, preparing himself to make war against the rest of the woman's offspring. And now that sand is pictured as the full, uncountable forces of evil. The odds look bleak. And I think, I think there is a little bit of a warning here for us. That yes, just before Jesus comes back, things are going to be, are going to get worse before they get better. And yet, even in this bleak picture, we find a little glimmer of hope. Because a little, a little picture is inserted into the, into the center of this image of the army. Look at how they're described as Gog and Magog. We'd have to go all the way back to the Old Testament, to Ezekiel 38 and 39 where the Lord prophesied through Ezekiel's prophet that he was going to destroy this Gog of Magog, who was a persistent oppressor of his people at that time. And what God prophesied through Ezekiel is the way he's going to do this is by sending fire on him. And that's exactly what happens here. You know, in the midst of this bleak picture, you have, you have the armies marching across the breadth of the earth, surrounding God's people encamped in a world under judgment, a world in which we do not ultimately belong. Paul says the same thing. We have tents. And they surround them, and, and yet not even a period is placed between the, this image of the surrounding of God's people in their little tents and fire coming from heaven. 
They, verse 9, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. It's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? You know, Avengers Endgame, the, the final battle, I, I looked this up. It was a little over 30 minutes. This is in a moment, a moment. Satan destroyed with hardly a finger lifted, thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and as ever. Christ and his people finally and fully victorious. Tension broken. See, what Revelation is offering us is not only confidence in Christ's present reign, but also confidence, real confidence in the present because of his future victory. Um, I don't know if you have a favorite book or movie that you find yourself going back to over and over again. I do. Um, or, or maybe a favorite sports team. Uh, I've mentioned before I'm a huge Nebraska football fan. Um, and I've also talked about how much the 90s mean to Husker fans. I was literally at a track meet yesterday talking with Eric Denley about it. We can't stop talking about it, Husker fans. Uh, and once in a blue moon, thanks to YouTube, I, I can go back and I'll relive one of the great wins of the 90s Husker teams. And as I do, I still get a little worked up as I'm watching it. I get excited at every big play, every touchdown, every, every long run. But the reality is, is that when, when Nebraska in one of those games loses a fumble, when they get sacked, when they miss a field goal, I don't have that same feeling of agony that I get uh, when I watch, you know, this coming fall, my Huskers play. Why? Well, I think it's because I know where it's going. I know that the game is going to turn. I know that victory is coming. And so my experience of the tension of things seeming to go wrong in the present is always being shaped by and seasoned by my understanding of where the game is going. Friends, I think that's the picture that we're being given in verses 7 to 10. Revelation offers us confidence and hope in the present even as the tension mounts, even as circumstances in our world and our own lives seem to grow more and more dire, based on a picture of the future of Christ's victory, Satan will be destroyed. So the call of, of 7 to 10 to the churches in Asia and to our church is simple. When circumstances grow dire, when, when, when you feel that tension stretching between you and this world, when you, when you start to face the frailty of your own body, the frailty of just life in a broken, finite world, don't lose hope. Whatever, whatever the Lord asks you to face this week, this month, this year, you have a victor, and his name is Jesus. The tension will break. Satan will be destroyed. And yet when that tension breaks, when Satan is, is finally cast into this lake of fire for all eternity, what, what awaits us? Now, what, what about all those people that we just read about in verses 7 to 10? What, what awaits them? Well, look with me finally at verses 11 to 15 where John is given a picture of Christ's final verdict. So this is the sixth in this series of seven and I saw visions. The war has ended. Satan, the beast, and the harlot 
the false prophet. They've all been cast once and for all into this lake of fire. And we're transported to the very judgment throne, the judgment room of Christ. And the image is sobering. Verse 11, we're told, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Verse 12, John sees the dead, great and small, the full breadth, standing before the throne. It goes on to say that the sea gave up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I think what we're being told here is that though many will want to run, to flee from the presence of Christ on his throne of, of sure and pure justice, there is no avoiding it. There is no fleeing. There is no hiding from it. We will all face it. And notice that there's no word of defense given in this passage, is there? In the face of the judgment of God. Verse 12 continues. It says, And books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then it reiterates, the sea gave up the dead, the death and Hades gave up the dead, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. It's a picture of the all-seeing, all-knowing, ancient of days from Daniel. This is a prophecy that goes all the way back to Daniel, where the ancient of days sits on his throne and he cracks open the history books with every deed listed in them, to judge. And that's what we see here. The Ancient of Days, Jesus judging every person, both great and small, based on what they had done. So what have we done? Well, Scripture is, is plainly clear that the reality is that, that all men, yes, even us, especially us, have at one point or another chosen the way of the beast over the way of the lamb. All of our hands are dirty. My hands are dirty. Psalm 53 says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And what that means is that on one side, we can be confident that to be given God's verdict based ultimately on what I have done will leave me in one place, and that is condemned and entitled to the same spiritual death, the second death, and the same eternal bodily suffering with Satan and all his forces in the lake of fire. It's bleak. So, so then what hope is there? Well, it's, it's hidden right in the middle of chapter, in, in the middle of verse 12. There is another book, isn't there? John says, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And we find from verse 15 that, that anyone whose name is in this book is safe, eternally safe. First heard about this book all the way back in chapter 3 in the letter to the church at Sardis, where at the very end, Jesus speaks to his church through John and says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Rather, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So this is a book of names that has been purchased and written not with our deeds, but with the blood of the judge himself slain for our deeds. 
know, to belong to the book of life, as, as one pastor uh, put it, is, is that I can either write my own story or I can adopt the story of Jesus. And to adopt the story of Jesus means that I am not known ultimately by my deeds, but by Christ's deeds. And that when Christ gives his final verdict, I have all the confidence in the universe that his verdict to me and to you will be, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the rest of your master. So what that means for us is that we have, we have got to stop trying to write our own story. Rather, we are invited to adopt the story of Jesus, to be clothed in the white garments of his righteousness, not ours. That is the only way, church, that we get to hear the voice of our Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because it's not about what we have done, it's about what he has done. And so we come to the end of chapter 20. And we find that this tension between good and evil, it has finally been broken, hasn't it? And as we close, I, I want to return to, to Marvel for, for just one more, one more moment, if you'll let me. You know, at the end of every Marvel movie, uh, just after that tension-breaking battle between the full forces of good, full forces of evil, good has triumphed, evil lies, lies in the dust, there's always a few more minutes after that in which we're shown the world that's left. You know, we see characters reuniting, we see people kind of recovering, getting back to their lives, we, we see a few jokes cracked, and really it's all in service of saying the world is getting back to normal. That is, until a new evil rises from the depths and the tension begins to build all over again. See, we need more than a world that is just back to normal, don't we? And what we might feel as we come to the end of Revelation 20, as we, as we stand in this settling dust at the end of the great judgment of the Lord, is a longing for something more than normal. And that's actually where John's eyes are going to be turned in the last two chapters of this book, which begin with the most beautiful and glorious of these seven and I saw visions. Because Revelation is not about something so much, it's about something so much better than a world pieced back together. See, what awaits us over the next few weeks as we soak in 21 and 22 is the truth that our confidence is not only in Christ as the one who reigns in this present world. It's not only in Christ as the one who will ultimately be victorious over this present world. And it's not only in Christ as the one who promises he will come and judge this world in righteousness and truth. Our, our confidence is in Christ as the one who promises that he's coming back to make this world new, brand new. And so we wait with anticipation for that day. And next week, we pray with me. Father, we come before you with thanksgiving for who you are and what you have done by the gift of your son. God, we ask that you would shape us, season us in confidence based not on our own story, not on the story of this world, but on your story and what you are doing, what you have done, and what you promise you will return to do. And now, Father, as we come to your table, 
God, we ask that you would use it to instill confidence in us, your people. That you would shape us by partaking in these signs and seals of your love for us, your nourishment of us, your work on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.